Welcome, sir. Howdy, howdy. All right. I made it. You made it. All right. Uh, Victor, thank you very much for joining me. This is our second interview. Um, we talked a year and a half ago, I guess, um, af after the election. And uh, it's, it's, that's on my podcast. It was a good conversation. I listened to it as background for this. Um, you told me how you got into Bernie or how Bernie or Bus crea was created and uh, re reliving a little bit of the DNC. Um, so uh, why don't you just, you know, give a little introduction to yourself. You, you wrote a book that you obviously you want to promote, but there's obviously very important things in that book you want to talk about. So uh, welcome. Thanks for being with me. And why don't you just give a, you know, a little thing to start with? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate this opportunity to talk about this uh, labor of love that I undertook uh, following the election. Um, it's called Bernie or Bust, Pioneers of Electoral Revolt. You can find it at bernierbus.info, I-N-F-O. Um, I wrote this with a couple of ideas in mind. First, there's a lot of people, a lot of, there's a lot of burners who understand why we need a revolution. That's, that's, that's not why I wrote this. There's a lot of their friends, their relatives, people they know who don't understand why. United, we need a revolution in the United States. They don't understand what the establishment is doing. They don't even necessarily understand that we have a corporate state, that we do not have a democratic order at this point. So I wrote this uh, with instructions in the introduction for most uh, readers to skip chapters two through nine, because that's the memoir. That's the history. History buffs will want to read that. People who are organizers will want to read that. But uh, most people will not want to read that. Most voters who just want to understand what's happening, at least from our perspective, would read Chapter 1, which is a reprint of uh, my New Year's Day uh, article on the Amendment Gazette entitled Standing on the Edge of the Next American Revolution. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how close to the edge, actually, I was at the time. But it's a, it's a reprint of that with some additional information about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is not quite as dead as we would hope. And, and it's those free trade agreements that I really am sounding the alarm about. This is kind of a, a, of a Paul Revere kind of effort. Not that the British are coming, but the neoliberals are in control. The corporations are in control. The transnational corporations are transforming this... Uh, Republic into a corporate order, a legal corporate order. And so I remember hearing Bernie talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he talked about, you know, jobs, losing jobs, jobs being outsourced. And I guess that probably appealed to voters, and it was a very straightforward message to convey. But complaining about the loss of jobs under a so-called free trade agreement like the Trans-Pacific Partnership is like complaining to a baker about the lack of walnuts in a brownie recipe that's laced with arsenic. There's just so many problems. There's uh, bigger issues. There's much bigger issues. Um, basically, they are attempting, these neoliberals, these corporate globalists, are attempting to uh, replace our system of democratic self-government with one that can accurately be called corporate self-government. So I try to frame this 
entire text, or at least the last three chapters, around the need for a revolution, explaining what they're doing, the threat, the existential threat to our republic by these neoliberals like the Clintons and the Obamas, and, uh, you know, to explain that, A, we need a revolution, and B, one way we can do it is through leverage. There's a lot of people who just can't stand the Democratic Party for good reasons. They, they screwed uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, that's become very clear in, in, uh, last year and this year. Uh, the, the many ways that, which the DNC uh, undermined Sanders, he, he never had a chance from get-go. Um, but what we're aiming to do again, and maybe Bernie Sanders, it may be Tulsi Gabbard, it may be another progressive, but is to exert the same kind of leverage that we exerted during the Burn Your Bust uh, movement, which is basically telling Democrats, here's the progressive we're going to support, you better nominate this progressive because if you don't, in this case, Donald Trump will be reelected. So it's, it's a promise, it's a threat, it's leverage, it's a, it's a way of progressives basically throwing their weight around and, and, and it's not so much joining the Democratic Party to become a Democrat, but rather using the party structure for us to get our way, it just kind of flips the relationship between party members and the party on its head. Instead of the instead of the party using its members to help get party elites elected or reelected, it's the members, the grassroots organizers and the revolutionaries using the party to get our candidates elected. I think that's what Bernie Sanders is attempting to do, and I don't know. I don't think he's going to go as far as. Um, our revolution or revolt against plutocracy in that in this year this current midterms we uh, we have a strategy it's, again it's using leverage uh, and basically it's if these progressives don't win the nomination don't win the primaries we're not voting for the Democratic Party we will write in a candidate we will vote third party we will not vote for uh, neoliberal the establishment middle of the road, if you will, uh, Democrats. Those days are over. We see what their game is. We know what their, the threat they pose to this system of government that we have uh, is, and we're just not going to support these, these kind of candidates again. So that's what we're doing this year, and that's what we're going to do next year. But we don't know what candidate we're going to support using leverage in 2020 uh, because it's going to depend on, you know, a handful of us aren't going to make that decision. It's going to depend on all the people who took the Bernie or Bus pledge, who still uh, subscribe to the newsletter, our newsletter, and they will have a chance to vote on which candidate we will supply uh, with leverage. It may be Bernie Sanders, it may be Tulsi Gabbard, it may be someone we we don't even know who's jumping in at this point. But uh, so again, that'll that'll be decided in 2019. Okay, um, this leverage. You talk, you're talking about is this basically th it seems to me that it's basically an endorsement but it's just a more aggressive kind of endorsement can you talk about that it's very aggressive it's uh, it's militant even it's so the candidates endorse themselves by signing the CFAR which is an acronym for ca uh, contract for American renewal 
that's the brainchild of John Rachel. He's a novel, an American novelist uh, living in Japan. I was trying to figure out how to come up with a midterm strategy that we could use, uh, basically progressive or bust, that we could use this leverage strategy again. And I couldn't figure out how an easy way for everyone in their congressional districts to decide who's progressive and who's not progressive. You remember Hillary Clinton said it over and over again, I'm a progressive. So you, you can't trust so. candidates because everyone lies. There had to be a better way to, to uh, figure out who, who's progressive and who isn't. And in an exchange of emails with the, the co-founder of Revolt Against Plutocracy, Patrick Walker, uh, he was carbon, uh, John Rachel was carbon copied on, on our exchange and he got back to me and said, hey, check out this candidate contract idea that he had been working on for five years. And um, I liked it. I ran with it. And, and we worked that strategy for a good number of time. If you go to CFAR2018.com, you'll see there's about 75 candidates for Congress who have signed this contract, which has, right. to be, yeah, has to be thrilling for... Uh, for John because in 2016 by himself he was trying to get Green Party candidates and other third party candidates to sign this contract and uh, he couldn't get anyone to sign it and and now he has uh, about 75 candidates who have signed this contract mostly Democrats that's where our focus was recruiting Democrats because this is primary season and this is the time if this is leverage if we're using it for leverage this is the time to be telling Democrats all across the country, look, you got to vote for these CFAR candidates. Uh, they're good people. They they have a strong uh, position on these 11 policy positions. They don't have to take all 11 of those positions. They can accept five, six, eight of them, right? But they're signing on to basically a series of litmus tests that are it's it's a manifesto disguised as a contract, and so they're it's signing on to this thing. And they're committing themselves to get behind this if elected uh, in the first 180 days of their time in Congress, and and to show that that they are working on this and they're not doing anything against any of these uh, five to eleven policy positions. Well, you said that some might choose just five of them. Are are there deal breakers? I mean, I would think Citizens United is a deal breaker. Um, so, I mean, how do we know that there's, you know, how do you say the degree to which they commit to it? Or do you just accept that, you know, they have to do all of it? No, I accept whatever they take. If they want to sign on for just uh, election reform, which is hand countable paper ballots and uh, uh, transparent audits, that's, that's one of the 11 policy positions that we've added to the contract. If that's all they want to sign on to, and that, but that's the only CFAR candidate in that election, that's better than nothing. Um, the local candidate we had here who signed on to it, he was a member of the union, he was a union organizer. Uh, he did not sign on to the Citizens United because he wasn't sure how the teachers union would uh, see that because they have a super PAC. Oh goodness! Yeah. So, how, so I mean, how do you how do you how do you clarify to voters that this is a CFAR candidate, but only for this item? This is a CFAR candidate, but for all twelve or eleven items. That how do you how does the voter know how to distinguish? Because I would be I would want to know those. That, that's very important to me. You know, right? If, if it's 
just one CFAR candidate in election, it's moot that, that they get whatever they've signed on to. If there's multiple CFAR candidates in a given congressional district, that's when it becomes uh, more important. This candidate signed on to all 11 policy positions. This candidate only signed on to two. You choose. We're, we're, we're not going to make that decision for the voters. It's up to them to decide whether they want a two policy position CFAR candidate or an 11 policy position CFAR candidate. I assume it's easy to analyze, you know, what's what. But what if, what about candidates that generally want, not generally, what about some candidates that want some of those 11 items but don't sign on to the contract, whether it's just they haven't reached out to you or they refuse to or whatever it is? Too bad. That's what CFAR, that's what, why we're trying to get as many people as possible to go to the candidates that they like, the progressive candidates. Maybe they're a Justice Democrat, maybe they're a brand new Congress Democrat, whoever it is, even Green Party candidates, to go to these candidates and say, look, I want to support you, but I'm not going to support you unless you sign this contract for America Renewal. We want not just a handful of us reaching out to these candidates, encouraging them, essentially demanding that they sign on to the people's uh, platform, if you will, the, uh, the, the, the CFAR itself. Uh, or else we're not going to support their candidacy. We're not going to vote for them. Okay. So, so it's really up to the voters in every district to get the candidates that they like uh, to sign this contract. And, and they can find this contract. They can sign it at uh, CFAR2018.com, just for people who might be interested in getting their candidate to sign it. And uh, and basically, it, it's it's kind of a revolutionary approach where the, you know, we, the candidate says, well, here's my platform, and the people are saying, we don't care what your platform is. Here's our platform. Get on board, or, or we're not with you. It's it's uh, it's an, pretty militant, an, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. Um, okay, so can you compare or, you know, I'll just say roughly. Just com compare is not really the, the word I'm looking for, but can you compare CFAR versus J Justice Democrats versus our revolution versus brain of Congress? I understand Justice Democrats which are, there's only one requirement for Justice Democrats, and that is you must not accept corporate and PAC money. And I, maybe the wording is not exactly right, but you must not accept big donations, which is great because I like that because no matter what their views are, that means that they're fighting for the people. Okay, so that's Justice Democrats is just that one requirement. Our revolution is basically Bernie's platform, roughly speaking, is Bernie's platform, which is which is a, a superset of Justice Democrats. And Brand New Congress has a very specific, even farther left than Bernie platform that the, that the candidates must agree with. And that when you when Brand New Congress gets into Congress, if they have enough people, theoretically, they would have, you know, the majority that all of those things are voted into law in mass immediately. Um, Whether it's so, signed by the president or not. Whether signed by well, yes, true, but so CFAR. So can you fit? Can you put these things? You know, compare these things to each other. Yeah, uh, presumably. I mean, it's not a requirement that CFAR candidates don't accept large donations or even corporate money. Uh, we probably should have put that in the CFAR. I think it makes a lot of sense, but we didn't this time around. This is round one for CFAR. Uh, and in 2020, I'm sure we'll, it'll be refined and improved upon compared to what we're doing now. Uh, it is our own separate thing, so it's kind of hard to compare in terms of platform and so forth. Uh, 
Uh, and it's going to be hard to convince people to not vote for a brand new Congress candidate if he's on the ballot in November just because he hasn't signed the contract for American Renewal. But again, that's what we want people to do, voters, progressives, to go to these uh, brand new Congress Democrats or these Justice Democrats. There's about three Justice Democrats who have signed the, the CFAR already. Oh, really? Uh, Do you... Yeah, in, including Congressman... Raul uh, Grajalva? Um, uh, Kana. Ro Kana? Ro Kana. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was teasing him uh, back and forth on, on Twitter. Teasing is the wrong word. I was encouraging him to sign it. He came back with, you know, well, these candidate contracts aren't very good. Look at Newt Gingrich in, in 1994. They had a reactionary uh, contract. And I said, yes, they did. But I don't understand why Democrats would allow Republicans to have a monopoly on successful campaign tactics. It worked in 1994. The Republicans took the House of uh, House of Representatives for the first time in decades are using that contract. And uh, after I said that, and then I went and private messaged him on Twitter. That was a tweet. And then on privately, I, I went up to him and I said, uh, we're, if you don't want to sign it, we'll ask your opponent to, to sign the contract. And he immediately came back to me and said, I'll sign it. Great. So uh, it, it worked. that's a kind of leverage right there in the, in, the, in the process of getting candidates to sign on. We can apply leverage. If you don't do it, we'll ask your opponents to do it. Because we're wow. only going to support CFAR candidates this year. Interesting. Uh, Ro Khanna and uh, Raul Grijalva and uh, a few other like real progressives actually did. I don't know the details, so I can't speak too strongly on it. But did something that I understand is rather disappointing, which is they both voted for the uh, Blue Lives Matter law of 2018, or I don't know exactly the name, but that's essentially. Uh, empowering the police at, at the uh, detriment of the powerless, basically giving them some sort of level of immunity, which is, I don't understand it, and I, I want to find out more about that, but I just I just happened to read that. Um, okay, so you said that you you wrote your, I read I read the article, you know, the, which I think is chapter one, basically, right? Primary. The origin. Yeah. So you wrote it, you wrote it in 2015 before Bernie declared, I believe. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true because there's an update at the bottom that says, right, you know, just months before. Okay, so what has changed? What is what has changed? What are the big changes from what's in that article? Which is the link is in the description of to your article, and the link is in the description also to your book. Um, what are the major changes, uh, if there are any, like really? big changes between what is in that article and the first chapter of your book? Well, the f biggest change is uh, right here. <laughs> in, uh, in that article, I considered the uh, growing and significant national debt to be a crisis, to be a problem. And since then, I've learned about, <laughs> uh, I've learned about modern monetary theory, and I've come to realize that it's not a problem at all. In fact, when I moved it over to the book I probably you read my mind Victor I probably should have <laughs> completely eliminated that that portion of it because it's not that important uh, in fact it's not important at all um, so that that's one thing is uh, 
it's just that that particular issue is moot. Uh, on the other hand, the the crisis for climate change is is more significant, especially now with with Donald Trump in the White House, because uh, yeah. nothing at the federal level is going to be done to address climate change or to uh, make climate preservation more likely. So in that sense, it, that's become more urgent. And I think the final change, of course, is, is the Sanders uh, campaign itself. That What I was trying to do with that article was spark a conversation about an American revolution. In the original uh, revolution of 1776, a conversation was going on for 12, 14 years before they finally took up arms and, and you know, uh, Jefferson crafted the Declaration of Independence and, and they declared their independence and started and started fighting. It was a long time. So I was trying to just, with that article, spark uh, a conversation about the need for uh, a revolution in the United States. And along comes Bernie Sanders a few months later and, and, calls, and frames his entire candidacy as a political revolution, which basically uh, was very surprising to me. In fact, when I first saw him uh, say in a Washington Post interview that the country needs a political revolution, I thought to myself, whoa, he's not going to say that again. <laughs> and that's how what wrong, he said, yeah. Yeah, how wrong he, I was. One of the biggest things that he did, for me personally, and I think for millions, is tell us that we don't realize how bad things are, that we've settled, and that it is possible to have nice things. And the only reason we don't have them is because the powerful don't want us to have them. And that, that you know, we've, we've compromised and we didn't realize we were compromised because it's been our whole lives. It's all we've been told. And he, you know, he doesn't necessarily have the perfect solution or at least, you know, can't be delivered as fast as we want it to be delivered. But he's, he's educated millions not only on how bad it's been our whole lives, but on the very, he gave us a real in-depth education on what that specifically means. And that allows us to, you know, the, the, his stump speech is the same over and over again. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a boring stump speech, but it really is meaningful. And it doesn't matter how many times you hear it, you learn something new every time. And it's all centered around money and politics. There's nothing deeper than that. And, you know, that gives you the context and the tools to how you took it. I mean, you, you retroactively learned this stuff before I did. I learned it from Bernie. Um, you know, once you learn that, then you realize that everything, it, it becomes obvious. I don't know. I'm sort of just going off. But um, I was not fishing for that MMT comment there, I promise. <laughs> but I am glad that you said that. Um, I thought that there was some other sort of more broad stuff, not just the specific lists in that. Um, well, I... But, in the book, I added uh, sections on trade, right? Because I didn't understand trade. I, trade has always been a fairly boring subject to me. I've never paid much attention to trade. I've always leaned toward free trade because I thought low tariffs was the way to go. I had no idea uh, what the neoliberals were attempting to pull uh, on us in the name of free trade, that this Trojan horse that they were using called free trade and attempting this, really it's a corporate coup, it's this major power grab. But that's been added in, in the actual chapter one of the book, that's been added uh, at the end of that first chapter to outline trade. And then in chapters 10, 11, and 12, 
I go after uh, the neoliberals on this on this thing. In fact, there was a in chapter ten, um, the blame game. It's it's, it's actually the, probably one of the most interesting chapters. I have an exercise. There's two readers' exercises uh, in the book. The first exercise, or actually, I should say, the last exercise, is to give this thing away. Don't just read it and set it on a bookshelf and let it collect dust. This is designed to foment revolution. So acquire it, read it, and give it away. And it's and it's uh, instructed. The reader is instructed to skip chapters two through nine. Uh, and what I, one thing I found out since publishing, having this published, is most people don't read beyond 50 pages when they're reading a book. So I, I, I get them to get into the meat of it. And in chapter 10, the other exercise I have readers undertake is this evaluation um, 14, using the 14 characteristics of fascism, which you, anyone can find Googling that phrase online. I use the 14 characteristics of fascism to evaluate Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, President Obama and Senator Sanders. And I have to say that Bernie Sanders makes a horrible fascist. He fails that uh, that test miserably. I think he gets a half a point out of 14. That's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And then I do it again for neoliberals, 14 characteristics of neoliberalism. After first explaining how this ideology has just silently taken over. There, there has been this transition from kind of a liberalism in the United States to this pernicious neoliberalism, which is not only uh, th these nasty free trade agreements, but uh, the way they interact with other states, this sort of hyper-imperialism and, and, and forcing states into this particular uh, transnational trade regime. Uh, that includes outsourcing uh, of jobs and so forth. But so uh, readers will get out their pen and paper or maybe just mark in the, in the margins and evaluate these four politicians on, the, on neoliberalism. And for Trump at the time, there was a number of question marks because he just he hadn't, he had no track record other than what he had said. And of course, not everything he said at the time uh, it's panning out, right? A lot of things he said turns out to be a con job. He's in some ways more neoliberal than even Hillary Clinton, and certainly so what are ter these, what in terms are, of foreign policy. What are these scores? Bernie got half a point. What are the scores of like Hillary and Trump? And uh, around 13, 14, 11, somewhere in there. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, on the neoliberalism with Trump, there's question marks. I just didn't know. So the score came out lower than if I were to go there and evaluate him now because I could I could replace those question marks with either a one or a zero and or a half those are the three options zero a half or a one okay uh, let me ask you just briefly I don't want to get into a discussion about it but just briefly can you define what you consider the how you define neoliberalism yeah um, it's basically I mean it's it's hard to define it. It's it, it, more than it is just to give the characteristics of it. Like uh, they want to privatize as much as possible to turn public services into private enterprise instead of public 
public waterworks, for example, they want to privatize it. So people are selling, the corporations are selling water to the public rather than it being a public, uh, a public service. So there's privatization, there's, um, uh, he talked, Bernie talked about establishment of uh, elections, uh, establishment politics, so there's this specific role in, in, in for money, big money in politics is, is the way to keep uh, the system from being democratic, right? It's not just we have an oligarchy, it's designed that way through uh, neoliberal Supreme Court decisions. There's two things that have happened. I, I, I should finish answering the questions before I move on. Um, I, I've actually, I'm starting to transition. Like, I don't totally have my head around it, but my understanding before, recently before, is that neoliberalism was, was a per, what's it called? Uh, a nasty term. I can't think of the term. I can't think of the, the term. Epithet? Not epithet, but uh, derog derogatory term. I thought it was a derogatory term, not like an actual definition. But I'm, I hear very reputable economists use this term. Um, so uh, it, it, it seems to be not just a derogatory term. But No, it isn't. Uh, there, there were uh, neoliberals who started this movement in the 1930s. Right, and, that, and that's what they call Milton Freeman, I believe. Uh, he's a neoliberal, but no, he he's a he came on after. Uh, boy, I wish I could remember the guy's name. There's two or three hey, of Milton them. It started Freeman? out much like modern monetary theory. It started out like a handful of people. Yeah, it was before Friedman uh, glammed onto it. There were no okay. Americans initially. That was a oh, European so he was maybe one of effort. the initial Americans. I believe that he, I believe that he. Is he invented UBI, Universal Basic yeah. Income, I believe, with, and the concept of UBI is to get rid of all current, all existing uh, safety net programs, which is incredibly neoliberal to do, yes. um, privatizing everything, um, in the hopes that that, that that salary stays around forever. Um, okay, so just briefly about MMT, um, I was very glad to hear that you do know it because I saw that the, the whole article was relatively solid. I don't necessarily agree with all of it as far as degree and whatever, but or you know specific method. But all of those, uh, you know, the crises, the list, your list of crises, um, I pretty much agree with all of it. And then I saw the debt, and I was like, whoa! But you said you wrote this in 2015, and and you understand now that modern monetary theory makes it clear that that the debt is just scaremongering. That's all it is. Um, there's it no worked on me there. for a while. <laughs> yeah, well. I, I, I wouldn't say it worked on me. I just never even let my brain go to that kind of topic because it was just sort of beyond me or just not relevant to me. Um, and it became relevant to me when I learned MMT, which uh, was only in February. But I deep dived. Some, oh, I, I, yeah. you know, a lot of people slowly got into it. You got into it a while ago. But I was dragged deep into it very quickly so I um, it's it's an exciting topic which I could talk about forever it's, and I'm not it's going the thing to I learned it's you know in this whole process I was basically putting together all kinds of things that I knew from the past and then uh, when Jill Stein was attacked for her uh, paying off the student debt by ah. John Oliver I got into a topic of you know how, how to fund that and that's when I first started pay for it. first started pay for it, yeah first started 
being introduced to MMT, and then it, it took me a while to, to really wrap my head around this this whole thing. I've since uh, watched a lecture, Angry Birds lectured by Stephanie Angry Keller. Bird. Yep, Angry Birds and Deficits. That's a good yeah. first video to watch about. It is, and, and, and she's good because she talks about this... Uh, this tank of water as the equivalent of all the money that's in the economy and how you, the whole idea is to keep that at a fairly consistent level. If it gets too much water, spills over the top, that, that adds up to inflation and if there's not enough water then you basically don't have enough money. Deflation. Deflation, recession and so forth, yeah. So the idea is to keep it regulated, keep that amount of money um, in that, keep that tank at a certain level so that there, you can regulate inflation and, and keep deflation under control or recession, prevent recessions from taking place and so forth. Right. So just very briefly, just to blow people's minds and not explain anything because we don't have time to do it, but I have a question, so I want to get a little bit of background. Modern monetary theory is empowering, first of all. When you learn it, it proves, it, it shows you exactly why we don't have nice things. And the only reason we don't have nice things is because politicians use this misknowledge against us. This, that's not the right, that's not a good word. Our, our they, ignorance. They use our ignorance against us. Yep. They use our ignorance against us. They pretend that a household and a city and a state and a company is the same as the federal government and it's completely different. So when they right. say the debt, it's just scaremongering. When they say, oh, how are we gonna pay for it? It's just scaremongering. They can pay for a $700 billion war without debate, without just immediately, without raising taxes, but all. But then you turn around Medicare for all, which is a fraction of the cost. Oh, how are you gonna pay for it? It's it's a choice, and the, and the, the basics of it in high speed, which is just gonna be like, people are gonna be like, what? But it's the best we can do in this, I, I don't wanna get into it. Taxes do not pay for anything at the federal level. Nothing. Taxes pay for nothing at the federal level. Taxes are very important at the federal level, but they don't pay for anything. Therefore, the government doesn't need any income. Therefore, to even ask a question of how do we pay for it makes no sense. Right. The way I like to put it is uh, taxes don't fund spending. Spending at the funds federal taxes level. at the federal level. Yes. Right? The government, we don't, uh, we don't fund the government. The government funds us. Right. And it's literally true. It's not, it's not just a funny poem. It's literally no, true. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's like saying 500 years ago, it's like saying that the earth revolves around the sun. No, no, that's impossible. Look, you can see it every day, the, the sun revolves around the earth. You know, it sounds crazy. But, but in fact, th that's the case. And uh, I refer to Stephanie Calton, who wrote that paper on, uh, on do bonds and taxes fund government spending. Uh, I Written as to, Stephanie Bell, it was her before she was married. Stephanie Bell, uh, a paper from 2008, I believe, or oh, she wrote like that, that before she was married, or 1998. I think maybe it was 1998. Anyway, go ahead. It, it, uh, it basically, I call her the Galileo of MMT because she proved what um, oh, I can't remember his name now. The, the original theory, Warren Warren Mosler Mosler, what he was theorizing. She went out and proved it in doing research and, and looked at where this money comes from. When the government spends money, where does it come from? It doesn't come from our from the taxes, and she was able to prove that. So yep. she, that that paper was like uh, Galileo's telescope. That's interesting. I have to read that. I, I I know about it. I haven't read it, but and I hadn't considered it 
that kind of way either. I always knew Warren Mosor was the father of it, but I hadn't considered of it, it as he sort of put the idea out there, but Kelton and her peer economic people, and I should say Kelton was Bernie's economic advisor and probably still is, I'm pretty sure still is, on his presidential campaign. Um, yeah, so she sort of proved it. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before. So let me ask you, this is, this is what I wanted to get to. For your movement, for yourself and for the importance of this movement, what role does MMT play in it? I think it could start a whole new kind of progressive school, a whole new progressive movement. Um, call it neo-progressive because it's basically progressivism. <laughs> But it's a way to counter the neoliberals. I'm, I'm sure there's people at the, at the time who said neoliberalism is a terrible name. But it, we need to. It, it's a good specific way to counter the neoliberalism. Um, and in order to completely round out, and this isn't what you're asking, but I, I just want to throw this out there. In order to round out a a new kind of progressive um, framework, we also are going to need a new foreign policy, something uh, that addresses the United States empire type of functions out there. But yeah, I mean, this could, domestically speaking, the, uh, MMT could absolutely um, represent a, a, a new approach, a new ideological approach toward all spending, you know, whether it's college education, Medicare for all, you name it, uh, dealing with this climate crisis that we're in, everything, anything that the government needs to spend money on, reparations. Right? Anything that the government needs to spend money on, MMT is the answer. They just spend the money. The only concern, and, and this is something that people have to take into consideration when they start talking about if, if we can actually take power, if, if someone like Bernie Sanders can actually win elections with a progressive Congress to back him up so that everything's in place to, um, to, to uh, have this kind of funding program, is we just can't overspend. In other words, we can't uh, have too much money circulating around chasing too few goods because that, of course, is uh, the recipe for inflation. Right. But other than that, I mean, we, we can really fundamentally transform this country uh, with, with this kind of understanding. So uh, Right, and I want to I I clarify. MMT is. It's just like biology and algebra. It is. It's not like if we used MMT, then... Then, right, 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 right. If it's, if we if we were if we became knowledgeable about it and used that to be able to respond properly without ignorance to our the, politicians the who try the and convince us otherwise, use it now, right, right, right? because th th that was Dick Cheney, right? They were using it to fund uh, the the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. They never raised a cent to fund those wars in taxes. They, raise taxes, they never raised taxes a penny to fund those wars. First time in American history. As Dick Cheney pointed out at the time, Ronald Reagan taught us deficits do not matter. So he certainly is not ignorant. He knows about MMT and they used it to fund these wars. So, and we can use it in the same way to fund Medicare for all, to fund uh, uh, development and you know, clean water programs in, in, in places and even relocation and, and uh, addressing, you know, <laughs> Uh, climate change because oceans are rising. There's going to be not much we can do 
even if we just stopped all carbon emissions today, just 100% stopped and, and had a sort of instantaneous transformation into uh, non-fossil fuels, you're going to have significant climate change, much more so than we have now in the coming decades. We, and so we're going to need, you know, dikes and relocation programs and other things to uh, address this. And we have all the resources that we need to do that. It's just a matter of, you know, having a broad public understanding of, of uh, MMT, of, of federal spending and funding that uh, isn't in place. Now, a little, just a little story about um, these CFAR candidates. We interview them, or try to interview all of them for our YouTube channel. And one of the questions I ask is, you, you're, you know, going through the CFAR uh, expensive, the, the, the infrastructure, two trillion dollars, the, uh, the Medicare for all, the free college education, and then I'll come back to them and say, you're, you're a tax and spend liberal, aren't you? And two of those candidates knew MMT and mm. gave, gave me gold standard answers. And I, uh, what? Wait. Yeah, after the interview, when, when the live, live stream stopped, I went back and I, I asked them, because I knew these people had been interviewed on uh, Real Progressive's channel. I oh, knew. You're they saying knew. that you're saying that you knew that they were MMT knowledgeable, but I they weren't so. acting that way during the interview. That is correct. Oh. And so, so I went back and I asked him why. And one was, I didn't want voters to think I'm crazy, right? Because we just got done saying this is a really different kind of understanding. And, and it's hard for people initially to wrap their heads around. So in the case of one, she, she didn't want voters to think she was crazy. And in the case of the other one, she gave me the gold standard answer because uh, she didn't think the voters were ready. She, you're right. Like, like you a year ago and like me two years ago, we didn't know this stuff. They don't know this stuff now. And so why don't was, we know this stuff? Because of people that do exactly that. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. There's, no, I think, no, I think, no. I think Real Progressives is doing a pretty good job trying to get the word out there. But there's, uh, there's still a lot to be done. And it would help if candidates like Ro Khanna, who's tweeted out, uh, kudos to Stephanie Kelton for the work she's doing on the Hill, training members of Congress or teaching members of Congress about it's not, MMT. It, I, I, I'm very, very, very skeptical that it's knowledge, that it's a lack of knowledge. It's by the voters? No, by these politicians, by the powerful people, the teaching people on the Hill, teaching people on the House. I would be. I am extremely skeptical for a lot of them. The ones, certainly, the you know, the ones in control, the leaders, that they don't know. Yeah. They do know. Yeah. So it's not a lack of knowledge. Like, oh, we have to teach them. But no, it's a lack of knowledge on the part of the citizens. They aren't doing their job. They're right. You, As politicians, they can uh, try to explain this in town hall meetings and so forth and speeches. This, this is this is what I think has to happen. I don't think there's any other way around it. Bernie Sanders, you and I were briefly talking, and Bernie Sanders seems to understand MMT, but he seems to say, oh, I can't look crazy. That's the choice that he made in 2016. He put out a whole thing of how are we going to pay for stuff. And, you know, that's fine. I don't have a problem with him not teaching people MMT. I don't have a problem with that. It's a, that's a big ask. But now, not back in 2016, but now, 
that I want to teach people MMT. I, I do have a problem with him trying, not trying, with him putting, continuing to put out this information and therefore sabotaging people like me who want to teach it because, oh, Bernie says this, so how can I even, you know what I mean? He's not doing it as much. He seems to be trying to change that. Um, which we spoke about. So he's not like putting out pay-fors anymore. And he even had his town hall in January about the Medicare for all and did not bring up costs or taxes at all, which is good. It's a great sign. He still says some stuff here and there, but I think there's only one way around this. And the only thing that he can do, which anyone should do, is is when you're asked, how are you going to pay for it? Oh, that sounds great. But how are you going to pay for it? I think the only answer is, I have no problem answering that question. I will talk for as long as you want to talk about that question. We can go back and forth for hours. That's fine, but not now. Not now. Now is the time to talk about the benefits of Medicare for All and what's wrong with our current system. Later, at another time, we can talk about how we're going to pay for it. And Bernie has the audience and the reputation or the respectability, whatever, that he can then basically start to teach people MMT. And because I don't see any other way around it, because Th this this lead, this goes into every single issue out there. So, oh, pretty much every issue, everything that's not just a social issue like prayer in school or gun gun control or something. Anything like that. that that anything yeah. that involves spending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, all right. What we need, what what would help, is um, sort of. Um, MMT in a nutshell, right? How do you explain there, this? It's impossible. Nah, it's impossible. Yeah. There are two. There's two levels of learning, and and I want to talk about MMT because it's all I ever want to talk about. But that's not why I have you here. So I'm I'm doing my best to <laughs> to wrap up and get back to what's important to you. But there's two levels. One is the mind bender, which everyone in our audience is like, huh? That's crazy. There's, there's, so you have to get beyond that mind-bending, the mind-bending topics of taxes do not pay for anything at the federal level and everything that implies. That takes a couple of hours of real attention. But once you get through that barrier, everything else takes time and is complicated, but you understand it because you got past that initial barrier. So uh, I don't remember what I was responding to, to be honest, but but – I don't it it takes some time to get over that initial hump. Uh, forgive me, I forget what I was responding to. Yeah, I don't remember either. Um <laughs> All right, good good excuse to switch topics. Sure. Um all right. So uh I, you know I you interviewed Billy and then I interviewed Billy the same day before right. his before his protest. He protested Bernie uh about Russia. Um, just very briefly, uh, the Russia conspiracy, the Russia narrative is, I believe there's a grain of truth in it, but the, if they affected the election, it was done infinitesimally compared to Democrats in the media. So even compared to Bernie or bust. Okay. Right. We had an impact. True. True. So Billy's problem is that Bernie brought up the Russian narrative. He has brought it up consistently. I agree that that's true. He has brought it up consistently. I do not think he's brought it up frequently, certainly not enough for me to stop standing with him. Billy think Billy said that I was the only super volunteer from 2016, Bernie super volunteer, that still stands with him given 
you know, that he's talking about Russia. So he protested Bernie pretty blatantly and he started a good conversation. Uh, you know, his protest per se wasn't successful because he got tackled pretty quickly. He should have stood that in front of the stage, right? Because he could just walk back and forth in front of Bernie with that sign. He didn't, have, he, didn't, he didn't even have time to unfurl the sign. Right, because you, he came up from behind him and the cops didn't know what the hell he was doing. Right, he could, he could have been posing a threat to Bernie, so right. so they basically they grabbed him. As quickly as but, possible. If he, but if he had just stepped, you know, walked back and forth in front of the stage with a sign holding it up, he would have been able to get that message across a little bit True. instead of coming in from but behind he, him. But uh, given that he, he still started a conversation, he definitely started a conversation. Which so in its way, it was it was successful. My question to you is, how much do you agree with that sentiment of that? Uh, he's not standing with Bernie anymore. He's not de definitively decided that I don't want. You know, he's sort of giving Bernie a chance. I I get the feeling that he's not going to. He's going to end up leaving. He's going to end up being against Bernie. It seems to me that that's going to be the case. He's not because alone. of. Okay, so I'm asking you: How much do you agree with, you know, his, everything that he believes in as far as the severity of the Russia and Bernie? And do do you stand with him? What do you think is going to happen in 2020 in relation to this issue? Yeah, um, it's going to be a real problem. First of all, I, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but. Yeah, I know I have. We, I'm not going to make the decision who we're going to get behind in 2020. That's going to be as many people involved in that democratic decision as we possibly can, right? So it might we might we might not even be supporting Bernie in 2020. And if we're not, it's probably going to be because of his repeating the the establishment RussiaGate narrative. I had a problem with him. Uh, in 2017, when he was first starting to talk about Russia, I couldn't understand why he was doing that. When Revolt Against Plutocracy got on the uh, Draft Bernie National Conference call to uh, express our endorsement of that effort, I said, you know, even from the very beginning, we, we had problems with Senator Sanders as a politician. We, we had differences with him, particularly on foreign policy. Um, and we just sort of set that aside more or less on our website, on our uh, Bernie or Bus website by saying uh, we, don't, we, we don't agree with every vote he's ever taken as a member of Congress, but he's calling for a revolution and that's why we're engaged in this new strategy. So when we endorsed him on the draft Bernie call, I brought that up. I said, you know, he's talking about we're not we're we're not uh, sycophants. We're going to criticize Bernie Sanders. We're not Sandernistas, right? We 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 were always critical supporters of Bernie Sanders, and on that conference call, I don't even think it was called RussiaGate at the time, but I was I mentioned you know here he is using the Robbie Mook and John Podesta excuse for losing this election that the the, the Russians ate our homework sort of argument and, and here's Bernie repeating this stuff and he never talked about the fact that they they rigged the primaries against him you know I so agree. I had a real problem with that then I still have that problem now um, as far <laughs> as tw so there's two things with Bernie one is 2018 I'm not a member of, I'm not a resident of Vermont so 
in a certain sense, it doesn't make an awful lot of difference for this year. But I still am going to call his campaign office, maybe even tomorrow. I just keep forgetting to do it during the day. I'm going to ask him through his campaign manager, if I can get a hold of Jeff Weaver, to sign the contract for American Renewal. You know, so sign this contract and show that you're with the grassroots uh, movement this, uh, for the midterms. And then as far as 2020, um, you know, I'm really disappointed. I, I, don't, I don't have a real solid answer. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with Billy. I'm not going to uh, embrace Bernie because it's out of my hands to a certain extent. We're going to throw that vote out there. And if the majority of people who took the Bernie or Bus pledge in 2015 and 2016 come back in 2019 and say, let's do it again behind Bernie Sanders, I'm going to embrace that, that Democratic decision. So, I, you know, I can't be, I can't be, I can be critical of him. We were always critical of Sanders, but I can't be dismissive of him. I can't say, forget it. I'm just not with him anymore because we may end up supporting him. You know, again, it's a decision that's not in my control, so I can't fully answer that question based on what I don't know is going to happen next year when the decision is made by everyone to who they're going to support in, for the primaries in the Democratic Party. Okay. I want to clarify, I agree that in one of the major problems that I have with Bernie Sanders is that he never really stood up strong, really much at all, against the corruption during the primaries. He acted as if, to, a, to too great of an extent, he acted as if each of the primaries were valid. Right. So he said Hillary Clinton won. Instead of saying Hillary Clinton won, but there were all these problems, this problem, this problem. There were some lawsuits and whatever, but I, I consider that a big problem. Yeah, he um, never addressed the. He never addressed the uh, any of it. He never addressed the, uh, the the distinction. That's not the word I want. The uh, the lack of correspondence between the exit polls and the results, for example, in many many counties around the country, all with a very specific voting machine. So he, right. and he never addressed that, and he should and, have. Uh, the the Edison polling. Uh, the headquarters of Edison Polling is just an hour north of me, and I covered some protests um, outside of that building right after the DNC because they they stopped they forbade their raw data from being released, so we can never discover what you just said that they, what, whether the exit polling reflected um, the actual results, which we can we can pretty you know reasonably guess that they don't. Um, all right. Uh, third party, you draft Bernie, um, is having Bernie exit the Democratic Party and running as a third party candidate in, I presume, 2020. So uh, my philosophy on it, I'm not that well educated on it, but my philosophy is that there's two horrible, two horrible options. One is to change the Democratic Party from within because it has all 50 states and it has all the rules set for it but it's a corrupt system so you know that's not a great option or he can go third party which does not have all of the things set up throughout all 50 states so i think it's pretty clear that if he went third party he would definitely not win but it would cause a political earthquake and would make progressive policies 
like if he and Nina and Tulsi and some others, you know, big, big people started a third party, that I think could create a political earthquake that could, in the long term, really change the Democratic Party. So you as draft Bernie were really pushing for him to be in a third party. And a lot of people were angry that he didn't run in a third party, which is just like damned if you do, damned if you don't really, and from his point Very of view. Very angry. So, yeah. Uh, uh, angry in an unfair way, I, I thought, because, you know, I get a lot of their replies when I send a blast out to everyone who signed that pledge. If they hit reply, it's coming to my email account. And, and there's an awful lot of anger out there, and some of it's unjustified. You know, oh, he ended up supporting Hillary Clinton. He said from the beginning he was going to support. He was Hillary always going to support. Well, always he's support the, the nominee. The damn it, yeah. yeah. Always going to support the, the, the nominee. The betrayal, and Billy felt this betrayal, and I did too. But I don't. I don't take it to be that big of a deal, to be honest. Is there was a betrayal, a little bit. Not well. It was a betrayal, of I will go all the way to the convention and fight. Right. And then two, three weeks before the convention, he nominated Hillary, which was. Right. That was against what he said. That was against right. what he pledged. So people take that as a betrayal, which it is. I don't consider it huge, but go ahead. Well, you know what happened in between? Something very clear happened, and it changed. You could tell it changed. Almost reading his body language, you could tell. something. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when he went to the White House and had that conversation with President Obama. Because after, uh -huh. after that, it just changed. He didn't take that fight to the convention. That conversation is what changed Bernie. So, like, fearful of, you know, so many people getting hurt because they were going to fight so hard? Or... I would love to uh, to know. Maybe, you know, he threatened his political future. There's all kinds of things that would have could have been said in that conversation. But who mm -hmm. knows? Bernie didn't share it. But he came out. Uh, I mean, you could just see his body language. His, the look on his face was different. And after that is when he went around, turned around and endorsed Hillary and, and didn't take the fight to the convention like he said he was going to. So I don't know if he was threatened or, or what, but something happened in that meeting with Obama. Right. So, so answer me that question, the fight from within or fight from without. What, well, ours what? is an inside-outside strategy. Um, I just read and posted on our Facebook page an article in, from Counterpunch by Andrew Levine. He basically did this lengthy criticism of the Democratic Party and then turned around and said, it's, it's the path of least resistance at this point. I mean, th that's not the language he used, but basically he said, you know, it's corrupt, it's, it's, it's uh, but given the choice between taking over that corrupt party on one hand and starting from scratch on the other hand or trying to get the Green Party built up or, you know, just any sort of third party option, as hard as it's going to be to take over the Democratic Party as progressives, take it back from the neoliberals, um, it's still easier than starting from scratch and doing you know, the, the People's Party effort. But that's so, what you were pushing for. It is. It is. Um, we're, we're, we're still... See, leverage doesn't work for a third party. You can't go to the Green Party and say, hey... It's got to be this nominee or else, because because they're not major players. It's leverage is a major party uh, strategy. Uh, libertarians could do it for the Republican Party. They could go out there and say it's going to be Rand Paul or screw you. We're not going to vote uh, for the Republican nominee. 
They, they could do the same thing. It's not an ideological thing, but it is a major party strategy. So if we're going to use leverage again in 2020, and I think that hopefully will be the last time we'll have to use it because at that point, either the Democrats will start taking the Republican, I'm sorry, the progressives will start taking that party back away from the neoliberals or they're going to just keep losing so many elections that people will be, this Dem exit will explode and there'll be nobody, hardly anybody uh, supporting the Democrats and there'll be just a wide open opportunity for a People's Party or a Justice Party or, or a third party to rise up out of the ashes of the Democratic Party. So for the short run, we're still playing the leverage game, the leverage strategy with Democrats. And then who knows after, after uh, I mean, if, if Bernie were to turn around and run as an independent, which I just don't see him doing, uh, but if he were to do that, that, that would change our calculus a good bit, right? Especially if Tulsi Gabbard came along and Nina Turner and other people came along and, and really uh, embrace a third party option that would really change our calculus but assuming that doesn't happen then we're still in a strategy effort it, it, we think of it as an inside outside it's it's a uh, basically any blue won't do but a progressive blue we want our Bernie blue baby we want our we, Bernie blue that's what Nina told well, me yeah Bernie blue progressive blue you know and, and we won't sell for anything less so it's just a matter of, you know, drawing a line, an ideological line in the sand, and we're not going to cross it. So if that means we have to vote third party, Green Party candidate, we will. Or in my case, I, I'm going to actually write in the the the, the CFAR candidate here locally dropped out of the race because he wasn't raising enough money, but he's a but but he signed that contract. So if another candidate doesn't come along and sign that contract here in the 23rd district of New York. I'm going to be pushing people to see far voters to support the right in as a write in candidate, the guy who did sign it. Huh. it be, the idea is to undermine the neoliberal Democrat because if they can't see far, they're probably neoliberals. Oh, okay. That's cute. Um, so do you believe my, do you agree with my calculation of the going, you know, dealing with choosing to go in or choosing to go out that if he does go third party that he won't win, but it would create an earth. Do you agree with that? No, I think he could win. Uh, that depends on other factors. Um, you know, we're way overdue now for an economic crash. It's just historically they happen in about every 10 years or so. Bank so lobbyist act just passed both chambers. What did? The bank lobbyist act. Oh yeah, right. So it, it could, it could, um, it, you know, if the, if the economy collapses, the voters aren't going to reelect Donald Trump. All right. So that opens the door for Bernie to come along on a three-way race and actually win a national election as an independent. Uh, how he would do it, whether he would attach himself to a People's Party or Green Party, I don't see him running as a Green. I don't quite understand no no way di distance uh, that he has with the green party but i do see the possibility of running as just as an independent hmm. rather than as a third party third party candidate like tim canova is doing in florida right 
Yeah. I don't think he will. I mean, if I had, if I am a betting man, so if I were to put money on it right now, I'd say, yeah, he's going to, he's going to throw his hat in as a Democrat again. Which he said, basic. he's already said that he was going to, he's confirmed. I, he's confirmed that. I mean, it was a while ago, but he generally keeps his word. He's, he, uh, he said he was running as a Democrat or if he runs, he's going to run as a Democrat. If he runs, he will run as a Democrat. Yeah. So, but it so. is exactly one year away. From yeah. from when he can when he put his hat in the ring three years ago, so that that time three years ago is one year. You know he he declared in May of 2015. Pretty sure it was May of 2015. It was the end of April. Exactly. It, it was a few days after uh, the the spark that took this Bernie or bust uh, uh, effort put kicked it into motion, so to speak. Let me just talk about that because it's kind of a cute little story that actually is uh, I mentioned it in the Philadelphia speech uh, during the DNC and then um, it, it's covered in the book but I'm gonna put just, a I'm gonna put a link to our original uh, interview and I'm, pr I'm pretty sure and if it's not I will make it happen that there is a there's the the video of that speech you're about to talk about is there okay um, it was a conversation I was having about you know, is he going to run as a Democrat? This is before he announced, just a few days before he announced, at the end of April, the last Saturday of April, and then I think he announced the following Wednesday, around April 30th. But um, the conversation was, you know, he he should he, he could win the national election, but he's not going to win the Democratic primary because it's rigged against him. The whole thing, that, that was super delicate. Before we found out all the, you know, the, Clinton funding of the DNC and all the relationship between the chair, W. Wasserman Schultz and, and Clinton and all the all the rigging that we found out about since. We knew it was rigged from get go because of the superdelegates. It's she the, had a they're there to point, stop the, she had a thirteen point head start. Uh, right. Yeah. They're there to block insurgent candidates like Sanders and they're gonna do it again. I, I I'm kinda of surprised he's running as a Democrat. But um so, you know, I thought, well, if we, we could put him on, like, the Green Socialist Party, some minor party, and just get him on the ballot and have him run. But he could soon get his name off the ballot. And that's when a friend of mine said, well, what about a writing campaign? Without researching that idea at all, we ran with it. But my point was that conversation was a street corner downtown Ithaca, uh, the intersection of Metal Street and... The very, very end of Clinton Street. I always thought that was yeah. a great coincidence. <laughs> it's not surprising to me because you had me listen to the Nico House video where you said that. So, but yeah, no, it, it didn't sound, yeah, but the audience, yeah, that's a cute story. Um, okay, so we've been going an hour and 15 now. So I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'm going to let you close it out however you want to close it out. Okay. So my, fi my final question to you is, your whole movement is about we need a new revolution. So, you know, that could mean a lot of things. Political revolution, Bernie is just voting in the right people. There are other kinds of revolutions. So what form do you see whatever revolution you're talking about here, what form do you see it taking? Well, it's peaceful. Right, so I'm talking about winning elections, and revolt against plutocracy is an electoral arm of the peaceful revolution, uh, or or the election side of that revolution. So I see it as peaceful. I see it as winning elections. Uh, 
there was a time when in the United States progressives were mainstream, right? Three out of four of the presidential candidates of, I believe it was 1904, three out of four of them were progressives. And now, because the way neoliberalism has come in and taken over, progressives are marginalized. You can see it happening uh, the way the DCCC treats progressive candidates in the primaries. So it's basically an effort to get progressives into office and, and take the power in this country away from the neoliberals, hopefully once and for all. When people understand Political hit how much piece from two days ago. Sorry? The Politico hit piece against our yeah, 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 Bernie yeah. from two days ago. Right. Well, and it's not surprising. Uh, Politico interviewed me right after we formed the Super PAC, uh, and that's an interview that never saw the light of day. Reuters interviewed me twice, never saw the light of day. Wall Street Journal interviewed me twice. This is all during the Bernie or Bust effort in 2016. The interview never saw the light of day. So they don't, they're very careful about not getting this out. And that's one thing that the revolution, and Bernie covers this in uh, Insider in the White House, in, in that book he wrote. Oh, years when, ago. when he was mayor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, when he first came to Congress, because he was outsider in the House. You know, the House of Representatives. I think there was a new. Okay, it, this doesn't really matter, but I think that that was a new edition of a book that he wrote while he was mayor. Okay, yeah, because he covered his uh, his election as a member of the House, and that first night that he won, he said, "This is the beginning of a political revolution." Hmm. When he nice. first won the House, so in my view, I mean, it, we have to we have to change the relationship of media, right, and stop this concentration of media and. and Enforce the uh, the uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the law now, but to to break up the media corporations into smaller and smaller pieces instead of larger and larger ones, that would be one one thing that is necessary. And certainly, just really get a transformation, get a handle on these transnational corporations. One of the things I recommend in this book is to go out and read. It's a free essay online. It's a political pamphlet online called One Party Planet. And the author talks about uh, systems. We have to learn to start thinking about systems and subsystems and, su and subsystems. So think about the world economy as an entire system. And subsystems of, the, of that system are the transnational corporations. And then a special subsystem would be the central banks in various nations. But those transnational corporations need to be transformed, or as they put it in One Party Planet, change the rules, and somehow figure out a way to change the rules of how those transnational corporations work, so that instead of sucking in wealth into the uh, center of the world economy, into the New York Cities and the Washingtons and the, and the metropoles of, of that world economy, to have that wealth distribute the outward toward where the they really need the wealth, like in the poor countries, so they start making a livable wage, not just Americans, and, and, and form a worldwide redistribution of wealth without necessarily, because of the support that can be provided by MMT, without necessarily decreasing the standards of living of, of uh, middle Americans. Maybe the oligarchs can have their standard of living decreased but that's actually not a priority, as you know from MMT, right? You don't have to tax the, the rich. You could just raise the, the, in, the income of working class people, and that will start uh, causing the 
wealth of the oligarchs to start going down because well you 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 just to clarify if i may you don't need to tax the wealthy in order to right. pay for stuff you really should tax the wealthy because we as a nation we as a people decide that that level of inequality is immoral but they'll make less if if it's not a zero-sum game but if the if if the corporations and a lot of the this wealth comes from you know cor corporate uh, stock uh, stock buys and selling stocks and so forth dividends is the word I'm looking for um, the dividends will be smaller if they have to pay the workers more. So the, the the wealthy people will simply just make less money. If that's true, if, that's if approaching people. the same problem from another angle. From another angle, exactly. So, but but it's a low priority. I do I do think they should be taxed, the super rich. But it's it's not a high priority at this point. But dealing addressing with these transnational corporations and how they function around the world, both environmentally, you know, um, the way they. Um, destroy the planet in order to extract resources and then the way they redistribute the way they distribute their their income right through wages is it can be completely rewritten again change the rules rewrite the rules of these transnational corporations would be one upshot of the revolution I'm not a Marxist I don't believe we need to expropriate the expropriators but we do need to change the way these transnational corporations run the, this world economy right so I'm going to make sure that uh, go back to the original question just to make sure you know, maybe you already did answer it. But what form will the revolution take? Do you feel like you've answered that? Yeah, it's going to be democratic, right, peaceful, and it's going to be progressives coming to power to displace the the neoliberals. So we have okay. we have progress toward uh, a more peace a more peaceful planet and a more uh, just society. And do you think that that is going to happen? No. To be honest, right? I could lie and, and, and give you some wishful thinking, but as a social scientific, I have a science, social science background, and just looking at it objectively, I think uh, I think these creeps are going to cling to power, and I think the system's going to collapse, and somehow there, we may rise out of the ashes. It won't be me or you. We'll, we'll be long gone. But somehow humans may rise out of the ashes and create something a little more just, or we may be in a, in a uh, what was that movie, Mad Max kind of scenario, right? After the collapse of civilization, we may we it could be horrible. I mean that's kind of what Chris Hedges leans towards if you read his writings that we're just we're just tumbling toward this huge collapse and it's going to be ugly, it's going to be violent, and it's going to be nasty, and and there's going to be just all kinds of death and destruction not necessarily from warfare and violence but just from uh, I don't want to say natural causes but the collapse of, of, of ecosystems and the collapse of food chains and so forth uh, I, I think unless there's some sort of I don't want to say divine intervention but some sort of mass awakening I don't I don't think uh, I don't think we're gonna have the peaceful revolution that we desperately need I think it's going to be violent, uh, sort of a Hobbesian uh, world of awe against awe and, and uh, very ugly, violent kind of future. Yeah, I mean, global warming is, you know, 
It's a major threat. It's not just a major threat. It's, 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 I think in some very dark way is almost a little bit of a tool to get rid of a lot of people. (laughs) I mean, I mean, that's, you know, I I don't have any evidence. It's just a feeling, you know, but we're not doing anything about it. And, and I can't, it's hard for me to see a scenario that is going to result in substantial fundamental change where like a billion people aren't killed in some fashion. I don't mean war. I don't necessarily mean war. I don't necessarily mean war. Right, but or in, more. just in some way, or or more. You said in right, more, yeah, or more. Yeah. So anyway, all right. So on that depressing note, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, if you know, if you can't, if you can't, you know, I have no idea if what I'm saying is true. That is what I feel, um, and you know, of course, I would love to be proven wrong. I don't have any like yeah, I would concrete too. evidence for it, but but I, it's really hard for me to see alternatives at the moment. So. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's one of the one of the purposes of, of having people get read this is is one of the in the conclusion I talk about a way to, that we as consumers can undermine Trump's efforts at getting elected without this uh, collapse of the economy, sort of a controlled collapse where we take uh, economic growth away from him. And if he's not successful growing the economy, he's not going to be successful as a politician. And that will serve also to help preserve the economy until we get people in power who would do very specific, concrete things that we need to have done. Kind of a green revolution, if you will. Um, whether, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million people read this or not, uh, it's going to be very difficult to actually uh, take power away from these neoliberals because they have so much money. You know, Wall Street has so much power and, and resources that they can throw into these elections. Um, it, it, it's just, it's going to take a new mass awakening. And again, that's, if not one of the primaries, it, it's probably the major reason I wrote this, this is to try to get people to better understand what, what needs to happen in terms of uh, transforming this country from this oligarchy into a genuine democratic republic again. That, that, that's really my purpose of writing that book. Okay, I just want to make one sort of response slash statement, whatever, and then I'd like you to just you know do whatever you want to do to close out, which is um, if Bernie wins, I, I think he has a, a significantly better chance that doesn't, you know, he had 46% with all the corruption and all that stuff and no name recognition to start off. So I think he has a significantly better chance. He's lost significant, he's lost some people like in Billy kind of people, um, but he's gained the Parkland High School students, that whole generation, and they don't see him, they don't see any of the negative. They have never been fed the trolling stuff and, you know, the bot network stuff or the correct the record stuff. So they're pure. They see him as a, bird, a Beatles kind of celebrity, which is, which gives me hope that that you know they're going to be significant uh, force to potentially pull, push him over the top. So there is a chance that he could win. Clearly, going to be extremely difficult because they're going to ratchet up the corruption and you know do whatever it takes. 
And I mean, the, I mean, the election's sort of already begun with the with the Politico smears, the Vanity Fair smear. There's there was another Politico smear related to it. I mean, it's 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 begun. Our, our revolution is has like a forty five percent success rate, and this article says, oh, they're flailing. In paragraph right. two. I saw paragraph that. two. Paragraph two in that Politico smear said, our revolution has cannot claim any major victories. Paragraph fifty eight said their winning rate is 45%. Right. Okay? So Justice Democrats are, are, are up there as well, like 40, 50% as well. I mean, so this, you know, it's only primaries so far, but, but this is a, clearly something is happening. And the Russia narrative has nothing to do with, or at least very small part of the Russia narrative is they affected our election. That's why Hillary lost. I think the biggest part of it is in preparation for next year's election. That's what it's for, is to, in preparation, to discriminate against whoever supports Bernie Sanders or that kind of candidate next year. Um, that's what the Russian narrative is really for. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say is if Bernie gets in, and even hypothetically, the Congress is still totally Republican. He would change the world. He has the power to do an unbelievable amount of stuff, even if Congress gives him nothing. Appoint I mean, just appointments would change the world to have a real leader of the Justice Department, a real leader of the EPA, a real leader of all the education. Oh my gosh. It would change everything. And then in two years, then the Congress would be swept because of all of that, all of that incentive and encouragement. That I, I believe, I'm, I'm curious if you agree, but I'm pretty confident that even if Bernie had no support in Congress, if it was totally against him, that he would be a transformational president. Um, yeah, yeah, I think he would be a transformational president, and I, and I think it would take two years after he came in for Congress to come along. It wouldn't be the normal backlash sort of thing, although it could. I mean, you know, the people with the money have all this uh, ability to spend it on propaganda. They would be attacking him nonstop, nonstop. He'd have the bully pulpit, and he'd have all the appointments that he could make, but it would be just this huge uh, information or misinformation war that would be underway even not just of course during the campaign but even in the aftermath trying to uh you see it happening on, like i said it, in the political it's no different article. it's happening right now it's no yeah happening. i was gonna say it's, on that it's, political it's, article yeah so he would he would be smeared with no power or he would be smeared with power let's have him be smeared with power i mean there's yeah, no you know, right. that's obviously a big he, at least it makes a big difference when he has the bully pulpit to fight back right not to right. mention a huge federal staff right they can that he can bring bring to bear on of course this. of course yeah. and all the economists that we are pretty sure that he would pick you know stephanie kelton i mean my gosh stephanie kelton has one of this oh yeah all right uh we have one question by, from that just came in from a viewer so please answer that and then close out close us out please so sylvia anderson says what can we do to help prevent the dnc from sabotaging burning in 2020 uh, nothing, nothing more than we did last time, which is like, they're going to do what they're going to do. All right. Tom Perez is clearly a neoliberal. He's put in place by Obama. He's trying to 
purge progressives from the party. Uh, the best we can do, and th and this is what I make uh, clear in the chapter or the conclusion of Bernie or Bust, is just make it very very clear to them as much as we try to do during the DNC with with a billboard and a press conference and then our rally, try to make it very clear to the Democrats they're going to lose. They're going to lose unless it's whoever we get behind. And hopefully it's Bernie Sanders, but it could be Tulsi Gabbard. It could be Tulsi or trash the Democrats. But we can't do much about the DNC because you know they're run by who they're running, and we're not in the DNC. But what we can do is exert pressure from outside and make it very clear, again, using leverage, like we tried to do in 2016, only four, five, ten times as much, uh, which is, again, what, why I'm trying to get people to read this and understand how, what leverage is and how it works, but just to come after the Democrats in no uncertain terms and say, look, it's got to be Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard, whoever it is that, that we get behind. It's got to be a progressive this time around, or or Trump's just going to get reelected, regardless of the state of the economy. We're, we can't get behind. We just got to make it clear to them in no uncertain terms that the Kamala Harris and and the and the uh, who's the uh, guy in New Jersey Booker. Uh, yeah. What's his name, Senator Cory Booker? Cory Booker. These neoliberals are just not acceptable anymore. Those days are over. We're, we're awoke. We know what uh, we, we saw the TPP. We know what these neoliberals are attempting to do, and and we're just done. It has to we have to apply leverage in un, un, you know <laughs> what's the word I want? I'm looking a lot more leverage than we did in twenty in twenty sixteen. Next time around, we got to make it so clear to the Democrats that. They're not going to win. Trump will get reelected if they don't get behind a, a progressive. We're like done. To, we're done with the Democrat. We're done with the neoliberals. I'd it like has to add to one. be a progressive. Go ahead. I'd like to add one thing to that, and then you can take it. Which is, I don't. I'm not contradicting what you're saying. I think what you're saying is fine, but I think there's another direction, which is when corruption happens during the primary, people need to demand that that pri that that particular thing gets rectified. For example, if there are people or if people are uh, the lines in Arizona are so horrible that that they people end up leaving, that result is not valid. Period. Something needs to be done to rectify that, not just oh we'll fix it next time. Like in New York, all these voters were purged, and. Schneiderman said, uh, you know, we're not going to, you know, waste our, our resources to litigating this. What? They right. committed crimes, but we're not going to do anything about it. Because you, what, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to comprehend. We're not going to waste our resources to litigate this, which means we're not going to, we're not going to put criminals in jail or investigate potential criminals, which means that We'll try and do better next time, but meanwhile, Hillary won in all of these different states. I think I think a significant part of it has to be protesting in the moment and forbidding these results as considered valid and do something about it to fix the situation, not just promise to fix them next time around. 
Yeah, it's hard to do on the fly. I mean, you basically got to get people in power to exercise the power as we, the people, we, the voters, want them to do that. And, and this is a perfect example. Uh, there was a the chair of the of Brooklyn uh, the Brooklyn uh, Board of Elections, who probably committed quid pro quo corruption. And change those results, you know, uh, didn't change the results, sorry, she uh, purged all those voters. Allegedly purged all those voters. Uh, and, and did so through this funding thing. I did a lengthy interview with B.C. DeGraff about this because he's covering the, the, the rigged elections. And and she, there is, should have been uh, an indictment. For her, I mean, she. It looked like all Same the elements with the of Tim Canova lady. corruption were there. Yeah, yeah, right. Except it, 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 with her case, I think she just did it on her own. In this case, this woman who right, but they're but they're not prosecuting. They're just going to right. give her extra supervision. Right. Well, they put they they fired the other one. She was pretty old, and she didn't need the money anyway because she'd gotten this six point six million dollar payoff for this house from the daughter of a Clinton superdelegate. It was it was almost classic quid pro quo corruption, and and Snyderman didn't, didn't go after it. And it is something that we we you're right. Somehow voters and and uh, supporters are going to have to come out and say, look, this doesn't work for us this time. You you have to follow up and find out, you know, why these things happen, why these purges happen, why the voting hours were decreased, why the polling stations were decreased. And hopefully deal with it in advance, right? Get ahead of the curve and, and make sure that there's enough polling places come come election time. And we hopefully we learned a lot in 2016, and we can come back in 2020 much stronger for it. But you know that the neoliberals will be cheating in ever more creative ways. Right. Okay. Well, this has been a good conversation. It's taken us, let's see, uh, 30 minutes or 20 minutes to. When I finally said, let's close <laughs> my final question, it's 20 minutes later. Uh, so, I mean, this is, this has been, I, I hope, I hope you feel like you've accomplished, like if there's anything missing, this is your chance. Um, but uh, please close us out with whatever you want to do, whatever, yeah. whatever you would like to say. My hopes is to have this read by 10, 20, hundred million people. The idea is not just to buy this and cling on to it but to give it away, right? And then have that person give it away and have that person give it away and to share this book. And it's got to start by you. Go to bernierbus.info, I-N-F-O, purchase a book, read it, or at least the four chapters recommended in the introduction, and hand it off. Hand it off to a voter who doesn't understand why we need a revolution in this country. And, and hopefully enough people will read this thing so that come 2020, Bernie will have much more support than what he had in 2016. People, Democrats in particular, will just understand we need a revolution. We need Bernie Sanders as our president. So this is, again, just same as uh, Standing on the Edge of the Next American Revolution, published on New Year's Day of 2015. This is just another attempt to foment, to foment revolution in the United States. But I can't do it by myself. People, viewers, have to purchase this, read it, and share it with other other voters. Okay. Okay. Victor, thank you very much for talking with me again.
Thank you. Appreciate this opportunity. I hope, uh, yeah, I mean, let's, let's hope that uh, something better happens starting in about a year. Right. Well, we'll see. All right. Thanks. Victor, talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye.